0: Well, now, I don't know the exact, year. remember the exact year that this took place. But I can tell you, it took place somewhere in the middle 30s, because we still lived at Paradise, and we moved from Paradise to Tucson in 38. So that was before that. Well, i had been up in New Mexico, and Clell was working for the government, of visiting And they're close to uh, at that ranch, well, we needed another saddle animal, so we borrowed this mule Budweiser. And this happened, and I later bought him and took him home. Well, he wasn't in very good shape, and uh, Vincent and I was back in there, and Clell wasn't with us, and Clell was uh, hunting for the government, and he went to town after supplies, and Vincent and I went out, and I was riding this Budweiser mule. Well, we came up on a point right at the forks of of a canyon, and it was steep, and it must have been 200 yards to the bottom of that point. And as I rode out there and started down, my britching, now that's what holds your saddle back to keep it from slipping over a a mule's shoulders onto his neck and over his head. Well, my britching kind of Gil some way, and that saddle scooted up on that mule and he just jumped right straight out in there. And boy what I mean, he started jumping off of that mountain, and when he'd go up, I could look way down to the bottom of it. And I knew we could never get to the bottom of that mountain like that. And of course that saddle had kinda of tipped up and that back end of that cannel was a uh, hitting me. And pushing me forward all the time, and the fourth or fifth jump, off I went, and I just rolled off of that mountain, and I was really rolling, and I rolled by a big rock, and I reached out my right arm and and caught that rock, and it nearly jerked. I felt like it nearly jerked my arm out of socket, and I finally got stopped and up in a sitting position, and Vincent was right behind me, and he jumped off of his that animal, and said, uh, don't try to get up. He said, if you're not broke all to pieces, you ought to be. And the blood was running out of my mouth. And uh, you know, I was so numb that I didn't know whether I was hurt or not. And I didn't know whether I had any teeth left or not. So I took my finger and put all in my mouth and fell of all my teeth and just had one broke off. And I said, well, But my lips is cut, the upper and lower lips both is cut where they'd hit a rock. And all the blood is just running. And so then I worked both legs and both arms. And I said, Well, Benson, I don't believe, I don't believe I'm broke up. And so I got up. And when I got up, I went blind. All my head started whirling. I went blind. So I just sat back down. And I sat there for quite a few minutes. I don't remember how long, but I'll bet I sat there for at least 15, 20 minutes, maybe longer, and kind of worked myself around a little bit, and finally I got up, and this mule just bumped around there and stopped, Well, we called him, and and went on and led him to the bottom of that ridge, and I walked and got down there and we fixed my saddle, and I got on. Well, the next day, oh, I was sore. I could no no more uh, turn my head than the man in the moon. And, oh, every time I took a breath, it really hurt in my ribs. But in a few days, well, I don't remember just how long, but within a week, well, I was riding again. I never even went to a doctor. And later on, I got hurt by a horse. And uh three ribs broke on one side. And when they and went to the hospital. Well, is they took those X rays, the doctor come in and said, uh, when did you get those ribs broke on the other side? I said, How many is broke? He said, There's four ribs broke. And he said, One of those ribs are lapped, but they grow together but they're they're lapped over. And I said, oh, Budweiser done that. After Budweiser was already gone, not too many years ago, that that horse hurt me. And he also hurt me in the back. And I really haven't got over that back hurt, never will. But uh, anyway, well, when I went home, I wrote back up to that fellow that owned old Budweiser and I bought him and went and hauled him home to paradise. Well, he wasn't in good shape, so I, I let him out on good feed and didn't put my saddle on him for about a month. And by that time, he was rolling fat and he was really feeling good. So I had a pair of big Chihuahua spurs. If you know what a chihuahua is, the roused. Or probably round three and a half inches from point to point, in short shank but long but big rails, and I had a pair of them. And so I told him, I said, if Old Budweiser ever butts with me again, I'm going to spur him in the point of the shoulder and plumb back to his hips every time he hits the ground. At these old chihuahuas. Well, I rode him for quite a few days and put some good rides on him. He never offered the buck. So then there was a ranch over there that that uh, was in a real good line country that was on the west side of the mountain. And I thought that I knew the people well that owned it. It stayed there before. So I told my folks there, I said, well, I'm going to, get on old Budweiser and hunt across that mountain and stay at that Baldridge Ranch and uh, for two or three days and then I'm going to hunt back and I took seven or eight hounds with me well when I hit the top of the mountain well I hit a bobcat track and I trailed it for for a long ways and for quite a while never did jump the bobcat so I got him and started down this, what they call Rock Creek, that, that went back down to this ranch. And it was, the head of it is way up in the tops of the cherry cows. So it was real late in the evening, almost dusk. And I started down to cross the, the creek, a little stream running there. And there was a stick laying there, kind of in the shape of a, of a rocking chair. Well, of course, I never paid any attention to that stick. Well, that mule stepped on one end of that stick, and it flew up and hit that mule in the stomach, and he just exploded. Well, he jumped from across that He was kind of in the edge of the water, and he jumped from across that stream and hit and he was right in the trail. And when he did, I just sucked them chihuahuas right up in his shoulders. And he made about three more jumps, and the lights went out for me. Not until later, I didn't know what had happened. And then he wheeled and bucked four or five jumps back into the creek and come to some real slick rocks that the water had run over. And that mule knew he couldn't jump out on them rocks, onto that rock and hold his footing. and he just turned around and came back out which was several steps from the trail and instead of turning back towards home he could have turned any direction he turned down this trail that i was riding that i was riding down when he started bucking and of course i don't know how long the time had elapsed but anyway it was at least a mile from there I came to and was sitting on that mule and it was just real dark and I just said whoa and stopped oh my head did hurt so I felt up there and all the side of my face right down by the my eye and onto my cheek and about halfway down, all I hide was knocked off of it. And it really did hurt. And th- then my left wrist hurt so bad I thought it was broke, but it wasn't. And I couldn't remember there for a little while anything. I couldn't. I, I just had to sit there. And I sat there for quite a spell, of course. I don't know just how long till I finally could remember leaving home. And then I remembered coming on the mountain and trailing that bobcat. And then I remembered then finally to where old Budweiser had started bucking. So, of course, I knew the country like a book. And he had missed the trail that I wanted to go down. And this, this, when I came to, I was really on an old road. And I wanted to go on down the, that had been an old logging road years before. I wanted to go on down the this canyon to that ranch, which now that ranch was at least three to three and a half miles right straight on down that rock creek. And so I finally located just where I was. Now I looked back and I've seen some bluffs in the dark that I recognized and they were called Mason Bluffs and named after a fellow after we were there that Ernest had a lion hunting and killed a lion in those bluffs. And his name was Mason. And so those, those bluffs became known as the Mason Bluffs. Well, I turned around and rode back down, back to the trail that took on down the creek, and found it all right, and on down the creek and went, and I come to a gate. Well, you know, when I went to get off that gate, my right leg wouldn't work. I couldn't lift it over the saddle. So I got it. I knew I had to get through that gate. And now, folks, I had to put all the willpower that I had together to keep from just getting off there and just laying down and going to sleep. Oh, I was sleepy. And I couldn't. And uh, I knew good and well that if I did, and it was getting pretty cold that night, I just knew if I did, that would be my last sleep. So I got him up close to a rock. And I took my left leg out of the stirrup and got it on that rock. And then I took my right, I took my right leg in both hands and I finally got off, got it off of that saddle. Well, I put my weight on it and I saw that it wasn't broke. But the muscles in the front of my right leg, I mean, up, way up above my knees, were tore so that I could stepped with my left leg, and dragged my right one, but I couldn't put it forwards one bit. Well, I finally managed to get the gate open. Then I got him up close to a stump. And, oh, he just stood there just as nice as a mule could. And I finally, with my left leg, I could get up on that stump. So I took my hands And just put my right leg over the saddle and just slid into the saddle. And on down the canyon we went. And I had all my my eight hounds. I counted them. They was all right with me. And I made them stay back. I didn't want no hunting and no running. And on down the creek I went. Well, I finally got in the light of that ranch house and I found another gate. So I saw a light there and I hollered. And a fella came out and answered me. And I said, hollered to him, and said, would you come over and open this gate? And he said, well, sure. So he walked up there. Imagine a couple of hundred yards, maybe 250, somewhere in that neighborhood. And as he opened the gate and I rode through, he said, well, I thought you were driving a bunch of animals or something says, why did you call me over here to open this gate? And I didn't even know him. That ranch had changed hands, and these new owners had been there about a month. And I didn't even know that the new people are, there, and I didn't know them at all. So I explained to him. I said, well, now, listen. If I was in the shape that you're in, and you're in the shape that I'm in, I wouldn't mind to walk in that 200 yards to open this gate for you at all. So he struck a match and looked at me and he said, say, your head looks bad. I said, well, it's not only my head, but it's my left arm and my right leg. Then I said, by golly, I'm hurt. Well, he said, that's different then. Come on over. So we went on over to the house, and he was just working for this fellow. This fellow was named Bill Baldridge that had bought it, and he was working in Douglas and had bought this ranch. And his wife was there, and he'd come out every weekend or something like that. And I didn't know them either then. I learned I learned to know them and hunted from there many times later. Well, come to find out she was a registered nurse. Well, we got up in front of the house and this old boy helped me off of my mule and then helped me in the house. And then he took my dogs and tied them up and took care of them. And oh, I wanted to go to sleep. And my, and I hurt, I hurt so bad. I, I wanted to go to sleep anyway. I guess it was shock, I think. That's what they called it. But anyway, when well, she went to putting hot towels on my head and my wrist and my leg, as I told you, she a registered nurse. And she put me right to bed, and it wasn't very long till I was asleep. Well, the next morning, I was just so, oh, I was as so stiff and so sore, I couldn't get out of that bed to save my neck so I just laid there and she took care of me then the next day well I stayed in bed too but I got up a little that day then the next day I told that fella I said I've got to go home well he said you can't go back across that mountain on that mule I said I got to it's not canna I said I got to I said, now, I told my folks I would come over here, and I was going to hunt two days, and then I'd come back the next day. Well, I said, my two days of hunting is already up. So I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. You saddle up my mule for me in the morning, and if you will, and turn loose my dogs, and then you get on your saddle horse, and you helped me through the first two gates up here. And I said, then I'll be plumb across the mountain before I hit another gate. No, I'll be plumb on top of the mountain before I hit the first gate. Well, he says, I hate to see you do that. I said, well, I got to. And I said, I got no way to get them word. There's no telephones around here. No telephones are, no telephone are Paradise. So I got, so he did. He helped me up. The last gate he helped me up there was that one where I first noticed that my leg was hurt so bad. Of course, he opened and closed the gates for me, and I said, so long, I'll make it to Paradise. Well, that is an awful trip across there. And every time I hit a gate, well, I had to get my left leg on something and then lift my right leg off over, and then close the gate, and then do the same thing. But I could stand on that leg, but I couldn't make it go forward at all. So I went home. I got there. And of course, I was just all in and went right to bed. And oh, my mother was really mad. She said, that's twice that mule has hurt you. And said, now I have a good notion to just take that mule down there and shoot him right between the." Eyes. And I said, well, Mother, he's an awful good mule. She said, yeah, he's good. He's hurt you before, and now he's hurt you again. So it was a long, hard trip, but the second day after that, I went to the doctor in Douglas, and he looked at my arm and said it was sprained And he looked at my head and said, that is just a bruise, which I knew. And, of course, I had all kinds of bandages on my head, just big scalps coming by that time. And he examined my leg real good, and he said, well, what is wrong? says, those muscles in the front of your leg is tore so that you'll be two months before you can... Before you can put that leg forward at all, and that was that that was terrible. I could walk, but it just rubbed my leg, and I couldn't step forward. And I, he said, well, you do, you'll be longer getting over that than you would if it's broke. And so that was uh, that was quite a trip, and that was quite an experience. Okay, this hunt took place in uh, the swamps of Nayarit, Mexico. And it took place about 46 or 47, somewhere in that neighborhood. Because uh, it took place after World War II was over. And it ended in 45. And one of our clients, our, was a Fred Crawford from Everett, Pennsylvania. And he was a man up in years then, and he was starting his big game career. And we were down there before this incident happened, and the dogs were trailing the jaguar kind of on a hill, but all over, we were in the edge of the swamp. And a, a big parrot, one of those big macaws that just got a little red on its head and solid green. Oh, he wanted one of those parrots. He's going to begin to mount trophies. So I've forgotten what he shot it with, but he shot it and didn't kill it, but broke a wing or something. And he went out to pick up that parrot, and that parrot just bit him with his bill... <laughs> Right between his thumb and forefinger, and just bit plumb plum through, and then grabbed him by the claws with his other hand, and he come a carrying that pirate over there and says, "Dog gone!" says I believe these pirates are more vicious than than the jaguars. Anyway, we we finally got him loose, and uh. So then we took him down in those swamps, and they were bad. So he comes to me, and he said, I sure want a jaguar trophy to take home. But he says, I don't want to go down in them swamps, after You get me one, and I'll take it home. And I said, well, I'll do my best, but I'd like for you to go. No, I want to stay here and not hold you back till so you can get me a good specimen of a jaguar. So then here was a a young Mexican that was only 19, 20 years old. He is a working horse. And he said, say, listen, he said, right down here at one place at this same time last year, we heard seven, uh, seven Jaguars roaring at one time, one night. I said, how do you know it's seven? He said, well, there's in seven different locations. I said, well, that's too many. If we can get one drawer, well, that's all I want. So I said, how about you going with me and we'll just you and I and we'll take a, a pack of dogs down there and, uh, and take enough to last us a couple of days. Food for us and the dogs and that big old dugout boats that, uh, we did, have. we had have rented there that was just made out of a huge tree and it is pretty long and, and would haul a lot of stuff. And and uh, he said, well, I'll go with you. So I said, well, how long will it, will it take us to get down there? Well, he said, I imagine me having to pole and push and paddle that boat. He said, I imagine it'll take us six hours just going right straight to it. I said, okay. Just between sundown and dark. that is about noon. I said, let's get ready. And between sundown and dark, let's leave here. And I said, I'll call all the way down. He said, all right. So we did. Now, they had to cut certain length kind of poles to push, kind of crooked with a certain bend on the end. And uh, it had to be, goodness, I guess 20 feet long. And those Mexicans were an expert at pushing them boats, and I could try it, and I'd go just one direction and then the other. Of course, I'd never done that in my life. So he had to do, well, he did do all the poling and all the paddling, as far as I was concerned, because when you hit deep water, then you have to paddle it. And we had a big old paddle in there. So we loaded her stuff and put it in sacks and wrapped it in canvas and put it in our boats and then we took six hounds and we just turned them loose in the boat and we started out well now this is shows you how sound will carry over that level country and lots of it water we got away down there from camp and it just got dark good and i heard music and I kept listening, and I could hear that music. Well, I couldn't figure where that music was coming from, so I asked him. I said, "Where's that music coming from?" He said, "Well, from Pericos. That That's a little old town that was the nearest to our camp, and that's where he lived." Now, these Mexicans will take a radio right out on the streets. And then just let them blur just as loud as they will blur. And that's what it was. I said, well, we must be six miles from Barrico's. He said, well, we're a good long ways, but everything real quiet and it dark, just getting good dark, but well, you can sure hear it. So we just kept paddling. We hit in deep water then and paddling along course, going slow. And I was sitting up in the bow of the boat. And I was using a, a horn then instead of a gourd. And I would call every once in a while and finally he asked me, he says, uh, have you ever had a jaguar after that horn? Now see, this is one of the first trips I'd ever made down there. Said, well, it was a first. It wasn't the first jaguars we'd caught in there. This wasn't the first hunting party, but it was the first season. And I said, well, I haven't been calling here very much. I said, the old man Don Cherm has been doing the calling, but I didn't want to bring him down here. I want us to do it. And I said, I've had jaguars to answer me up north. He said, well, you know, says I don't believe that sounds too much like a jaguar. I don't believe these here will, will answer that call. I said, well, maybe they won't. So we just Kept a-paddling, though, and I imagine 30 minutes later, or maybe longer than that. No, I guess it's probably an hour later, maybe an hour and a half, quite a while later. Well, I called, and we heard one off to her left, and the first time this thing answered, you could hear it good. And oh boy, now that old boy got really got excited. He said, That's a big male. And I know good and well he couldn't tell. But I didn't say anything. He said, Now you roar like a female and says that thing will come right to us. I kinda of sniggered, and so in a little bit I just cut down on a call. Didn't change my call one bit, and this is the way of imagination will work on you. That jaguar just answered right back, and that old boy said, that, that sounded just like a female jaguar, that call, last call you made, and I didn't change it, one particle. So I told him, I said, well, now listen, we got to get to land if that thing's coming to us. And where can we get off? He said, well, right down there, there's a real narrow uh, place that we can just get the boat through. But I've been in there by boat, and uh, there's a place in there where we can dock the boat. And I said, well, let's get to it. So we started. And I called just a time or two more, and that thing answered and was coming towards us. So we finally then one of these hounds jumped out of the boat. Well, I finally got out and all of that mud and stuff and got that dog, and I held his mouth so he couldn't bawl and beller, and I corrected him a little bit and put him back in that boat, and he didn't try to jump out anymore either. And I had quit calling the jaguar, and he was roaring just every little bit, still coming towards us, and he was trying to get me to answer him, and I wouldn't do it. I kept telling this boy, come on, get this thing pushed through here, and let's get to where we can dock this boat and get out, and take our dogs out. And he said, well, it's not, it's just a little ways on down here, so after a bit, well, we got there, so we tied our boat up, we took the dogs out, and took them back And here was a little opening right next to there that wasn't jungle, but it was real muddy around the edges and water in the middle of it. And so we took them back into the jungle and tied them up. It was on wet ground, but they just laid down and went to sleep. Real muddy around the edges and water in the middle of it. And so we took them back into the jungle and tied them up. And It was on wet ground, but they just laid down and went to sleep. These hounds did. They paid no attention to that calling because I called around them all the time and I didn't want them to pay any attention. And during this time, that jaguar kept a roar every little bit. And we finally got all ready. And so I I walked down, not over 20 yards, 25, from where this the hounds was. And I left this Mexican boy there. And I just squatted down on my heels because it was mud there to sit down. And I called. And boy, he just answered right back. And you could tell he wasn't too far off. And now in a minute, I heard a crackling and looked back there, and this old boy built a fire. And I jumped up and run back there and stomped it into the mud. And I said, we are come down here to call the Jaguar up, and then you build a fire. He said, well, I'll, I'm a cold. I said, well, by golly, you can't be too cold. And I said, you come with me. That was a bad thing. But I made him go with me and we walked back down there right to where I'd been squatted down. So we both squatted down. And I called and that thing answered right off. And he's closer. So we waited there a little while. I called again. Nothing. After a little bit, I called again. No answer. And, uh, now, all of this time, is about, about midnight. And, all right, I waited a while and I called again. No answer. I said, then I thought he got suspicious and probably turned back or went around us or done something. And so we had just squatting there. And way down there, quite a little ways from us, and around just a little point of this this jungle that come right around the the edge of that, right next to this string of water we had tied up on, we heard him walking. And you could hear him walking pretty plain. And these hounds laying back there didn't know there was anything taking place, and they never winded him or anything. And now, in a minute, that now this was the moon is shining, but real pale. But you could see him real plain. He just stepped around, gone around them bushes where we couldn't see him and started right to us. And when he did, that old kid just started to get up. And, and I reached over and caught his right and grabbed him by the arm and said, Stay still, stay still. Whispered to him and he's going to get up anyway. So I turned him loose, and he jumped up, and he had a flashlight, and I had one, and he shined that light at him and turned and ran back to the dogs. And they was tired. And I just squatted there, and he just stood there with his head held high and looking at us. And I decided that I'd take a shot at him in that light. So I just eased. Them. I had a .30-30 and no bullet in the barrel. Well, I just eased that Winchester. I just eased that uh, lever down. And when it clicked, well, he just turned and run across that opening right in front of us. And he is making big jumps. Well, I didn't shoot at him because I knew there wasn't... I knew I didn't have any show of hitting him, and I just thought maybe it might make him run faster or do something. So I just jumped up and turned around and run back to those hounds, and we had them tied with little ropes and no collars on them. And I had I just took my pocket knife and just cut them little ropes off of them just as fast as I could. Well, six of them, now that didn't take long. Then I just grabbed my gun and had my flashlight, and started to running down through there, and these hounds they weren't excited, and I was them to get a to get to get a little pep in them. And one of them stopped to go to the bathroom, and I run over him and nearly fell down. And when we hit where that thing had run across that flat, now they come to lie. because they all bought... Bawled and bellered and barked, and they left their own high gear and us after them with our flashlights. Well, we didn't go far till we hit a good stringer of water. And this boy was probably 20, 30 feet to one side of me and he he crossed it. He is ahead of me and he crossed that water. And I hit that water and it just started getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And finally I was holding my gun and flashlight plumb up over my head and it come right to the pit of my arm. And I thought maybe I was going to have to swim. So he is already out on the bank and I told him, I said, you be sure and, and hang on to that flashlight because if no, if I have to swim, I'm going to try to bring my rifle across, but I'll throw this flashlight down. But I've got across. And then away we went. While well, we heard him, and you know that thing must have run off at least um, seemed to me like a good mile before they ever baited him. And the dogs caught him, and he wouldn't climb a tree. He baited on the ground, and we could hear them a fighting him, and the hounds a screaming and all that. So of course we had to hurry as fast as we could. And it wasn't long till we was right there. While we we came up on two hounds one of them was a little red hound and the the other one was an old hound we got out of california that was an english and they just stand there barking well the jaguar was in there 40 feet from them and there was only two dogs with him so we started slipping into those other dogs and just passed these and they didn't go in on with us either. They just stood there because they were scared. And we got right up to some... Well, what these trees are, the tree starts out and then from away up there and little bitty roots hang down. And it shows how deep that water does get but how high it is where the tree starts because these roots will just keep hanging down and... Uh, and you form a, oh, there is big around some of them as a, is a broom stick. And this thing was made in one of them. And when we got right close to them, not a minute here come one of these hounds, I called him Deuce. He is a light colored blue tick. And he come around from the opposite side and just made a circle out there. And he wasn't a barking or a howling. That dog was a screaming, the most pitiful screams you ever heard. And I thought, well, boy, he's gone. And that leaves me only one hound because them other two are not here. Because those two back there wasn't going to do many good. And, you know, that dog just circled around out there and come back. And into there he went and bit, went to be, and that jaguar right close. Well, this other English dog that was called uh, Rowdy, now he had blue tick body and red tick legs and a tan head. He was just a staying right in there, and would come right up to where that thing was bayed and shine the light in there, and saw just a little spot. And so, by golly, this old kid had never killed a jaguar in his life, and I'd killed him. So I just handed him the gun and held that light in there, and I said, shoot him. We didn't know what part of him it was. And he shot in there, and right in the middle of that opening, which wasn't any bigger than a baseball, and I guess hit right about in the middle of it. And that jaguar just made two or three jumps and come out on the other side, and fell dead. He hit him right behind the shoulders, right? Just tore his lungs all to pieces. And boy, these, then these other two dogs came in and these dogs was chewing on that jaguar and we went around there and looked at it. And this other English dog was a rowdy. He would look at me and chew on that jaguar and wiggle his tail. And boy, he had the most pitiful-looking head that you ever saw. Oh, he was tore up. That one big gash right straight across his head, and his um, uh, and his uh, jaws and nose. Oh, and he was ripped up. But he was just tickled. He just chewed on that jaguar and wiggled his tail and looked at me. Then he got that jaguar by the ear, and I had to get him a loose because if I'd left him there, he'd run that trophy and a you, that jaguar's ears off, And I knew that, because I'd run bar with him, and he'd do that to bar if uh, I didn't make him get back. So then, that was about two o'clock that night. So I told that old boy, I said, okay, you go back to the boat. And I'll Drag this thing along, and it's going to take me a long time to drag it out. But I said, it won't hurt to hide a bit in this mud and water and stuff. And uh, you go back to the boat and take a look for those other hounds. And so I was a still a-pulling and a-tugging and moving along a little bit, and it went to getting daylight. So after I, I figured I was long... Pretty close to where we left the boat. I hollered, and that old kid answered me. He said, here's these other two hounds. They're here at camp. And I said, well, what's the matter with them? He said, well, they're tore up. And I said, all right. I said, tie them up. I said, can you bring that boat around anyway and get to me at this point? Next stringer of water, that'd be the stringer of water that I crossed that night. He said, yeah, I can go down a ways and then come back up and pick you up. I said, well, you do that. And by the time you get here, well, I'll be to the edge of that water with this jaguar. And, of course, I had the other four hounds with me. So he did, and we loaded that jaguar up and, and then went back down and back up to where we had our camp. Took her dogs out and tied them and and give them something to eat. Then we got something to eat for ourselves that we had there. And so we loaded that boat up then and we started back to town. And so I took this big old Jaguar and put him under there. Had had already gutted him before I ever started to drag him out. Put him in this old boat. And of course, it was pretty hot weather down there you can't leave those hides on too long or you'll run your hide. So I covered him up with this old tarp gooden, so he'd stay as cool as possible. And we started. Of course, I we come back faster than we went because I was hurrying that old boy all the way. Well, late that afternoon, uh, we come, was coming into camp. And so I just took that old horn and I was just hollering through it. I wasn't calling the Jaguar anything. And of course they herded his camp and they were standing there on the bank and this old fellow that wanted that Jaguar so bad said to my brother there and he was a cooking us, Benson, said, do you reckon they got a Jaguar? Well, Benson says, I imagine that they have or he wouldn't be hollering through that horn. And, of course, these dogs weren't tied. They in there. And when we pushed it up against the bank there, and one of these other Mexicans jumped down there and got the rope and tied it, I said, well, boys, take a look at them. I said, you can tell by looking at this pack of hounds that something's happened. Now, there was uh, four of them that really tore up. And this English dog, oh, he was horrible. And that was before the days of penicillin but we did have this sulfur powder and I'd had some of that with me of course I'd put that all in him but coming up there that that day I saw him a a patent and I looked down by the side of his jaw I think it was on the, the left side and saw a big hole right next to his jaw and I pulled his lips out and stuck my finger in there and I could just stick my finger way down in the hole they didn't even show on the outside of his mouth. But, oh, he is in tough shape. Well, we took him out there, and uh, they said, yeah, we can tell by looking at him something's happened. Well, I said, fellas, it's a sad story, because he got away. And I was just looking right straight at this client, and boy, the disappointment come, up, look, come over his face. So I said, oh, by the way, I'm going to let you take a look at some little old animal here that we did finally manage to get. And I throwed that tarp back, and that big spotted son of a gun was laying there, and he was a beautiful animal, and we watched him all off and all. And, that, and I was still looking at this guy, and when he saw that jaguar, the expression turned from disappointment or something. A real satisfaction when he looked at that trophy. Now that's the, the that the, that was a, a good hunt for game, but I sure hated to see those dogs tore up like they were. Well, the next day, that poor dog, old Rowdy, I called him, that English dog, head was swelled so that his head was a at least twice as big as it ought to be, and his eyes were swelled so that he couldn't see one wink out of either eye. And it took a quite a quite a while to ever for him to ever so he could see to get around. Well, now see that in the hot country down there, and those jaguar claws and their teeth are real in. Infectious. They will really infest, uh, put infection into any gas that you can get. Now, a dog don't, doesn't get infected anything like a man. So you can figure what they could do to a man, even if they mauled him and clawed him. He'd be lucky, just like in Africa, when a, a man gets mauled by those lines of ever get of, uh, of survive, surviving just the infection. And that's just the same way it is down there. And uh, so in the days of penicillin, I always take lots of penicillin with me. And when I get a dog tore up, I start shooting him right then with penicillin. And penicillin has really been a a blessing to anybody hunting down in that country. Now, when, when you're training big game hounds, there are several things that you should and should not do. Now, this is one thing that you should not do. You should not overhandle your hounds. Now, what I mean by overhandling them is do not be so severe on them that when they're out there in the woods and you're uh, hunting them and trying to catch something with them, that they're afraid of you and that they're more or less afraid to run anything and, uh, and and afraid of you now you shouldn't have your dogs afraid of you but you should have good control of them and if you're uh, training big game hounds you should be sure that that dog knows its name now in your pack of hounds you shouldn't have too many dogs that have the same sounding name so if you speak to one dog or one hound That is the dog that answers, and not all the rest of them at the same time. And that that helps a lot if you speak into one dog and it minds and handles, and the others don't pay any attention to it. And do not have your hounds afraid of you and afraid to perform, because you will not get the potentials out of them. And sometimes you might get him to where he wouldn't run anything. Now, when you're out there. Uh, uh, hunting, and you have a client that is a paying you $2,000 for a 10 day hunt, and your hound is over a couple of big, two or three big ridges from you and in a deep canyon in treed, and you, you'll never know it, and never hear him, and never find that dog. Well, naturally, that makes your client very unhappy. And to be a successful big game hunter, you want your clients happy and satisfied or you will not make a a goal of a big game guide and a hunter of hounds. Now, what I mean by that, when you're out there, don't let them range away, away from you. Have those hounds to where they will hunt but they will probably not get off to the side or up in front of you much over 100 yards, not over 200 at the most, but about 100 yards is a pretty good distance. And uh, and if they're working off to the sides and then in front of you for 100 yards and there's a line comes through the country, uh, you come close to it, you're going to hit its tracks. But now, like you have three dogs and one goes north and one goes east and one west, and they'll go for a mile away, While well, you're allowed to have two or three packs. And uh, 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 two or three dogs are going at the same time, and none of them be able to hear one another. So do not let your dogs range too far when you're big game hunting. Well, when you're big game hunting, you hunt right along with your dogs and you're all, and you're always looking for tracks. And I have found tracks that, that was, uh, wasn't fresh tracks that the dogs had passed over. And I've showed it to them and eventually caught that animal that day. Now, when you see a track, I usually, I can even put them on a the track when I'm a sitting on my saddle animal. But I get off my animal, saddle animal and call these hounds, and I point right to that track. Well, now, you want to train your dogs that when you kind of say, here's a track, come here, and point to the ground. They know that you're finding the track, and that they'll come. And they'll put their nose right where you point. and that is a must to a good trained big game hound. He wants to put his nose where you point your finger and see if he can possibly get any scent right where you're point where you're pointing at. And that is a must in big game hunting. Now when I'm a tra- training big game hounds, I do not fire guns around them and keep a shooting around those dogs when maybe you're you might them by shooting specially big high-powered rifles right around them uh, and they don't know what's a taking place. I train my dogs to a gun. When I come up to a tree and they're treed and I walk up there with a gun in my hands those dogs come to me and when they see me with a gun and they're really uh, got to turn around and glue their eyes on that animal because they know that i'm going to shoot it out and i want my dogs trained to a gun so if i do see an animal and they're off a ways from me and i shoot at them shoot at the animal i want them to come to me and and uh In high gear, because that has happened, and I want my dogs trained to a gun, and I do not shoot around them, and I don't let other people shoot around my dogs. I've had some pretty harsh words with fellas as always trying to shoot around them when there wasn't anything to to shoot at that you wanted them to run. And that is a, a must, as far as I'm concerned. Do not shoot around your dogs unless you're shooting at something that you want them to run. Well, now, I'm not trying to claim that I'm any real smart man, but I'm telling you these things that I have picked up from experience of many years in the woods and in the mountains with my hounds. And it worked on these Trips, and that's the reason that I'm telling you these things do and don't, because they have proven through experience, not through hearsay. Now the, the the Lee brothers have lots lots of records, and here is one record that I am really proud of. Now there is one was one client, Mr. Joseph Shirk of Peru, Indiana, booked. 17 hunts with the lee brothers and he was successful and got what he went after uh, uh, 15 out of the 16 hunts and he never lived to make the 17th one when he was booked well now when you have this kind of success in handling clients and get getting them what they want well that Means that you will have success in getting, uh, clients. Now, with the last hunt that this Mr. Joseph Shirk made with us, he got four lines in a two weeks hunt. And he got three males and one female. And one male was an extra large male line. And that's when you do that. That is the best advertising you can get. And you don't have to spend half of what you make on one client trying to get another one because these big game sports and that you guide for are men that have plenty of money and they have lots of friends that are, are sports and talking amongst themselves. Well, that's where you get the good parties when you are really a successful big game guy. Well, now, when you're going to take these high-powered sportsmen out on hunting trips, it is the best to always do your homework before you ever take them to camp. You go into an area and you scout that area and you find where the, The animals are ranging, no matter what you're going to guide for, if you're going to guide for bear, lion, anything that you're guiding for, jaguar and all that, you know that uh, that, that you have animals in the particular area where you're going to hunt. Because if you don't do that before you ever take your clients into camp, You're not going to be a a good, successful, big game guide. And that is a must that you should do if you're going to be successful. Now, when you're hunting and training dogs for big game dogs and you're either a big game hunter or a guide, you want to be extremely careful with your hounds not to take anything away from them that is hereditary like trailing striking and training and you want to be extremely careful about that because if you're not what well, you won't be successful and they will not produce the game for you that they would if you give them a fire shake and treated them and handled them the way that they should be handled and treated. Don't take out of a hound something that you can't put back.